do want to thank our um, string ensemble for adding such beauty to our worship today and every time they play here, so thank you again very much for that. Well, in honor of Mother's Day, I thought we'd begin uh, by remembering some of the best advice our mothers ever gave. So, I just want you to raise your hand if you can remember your mom saying this, these things, or something like these things. Here we go. Eat your vegetables. Okay. My mom uh, said that a lot and tried to get me to eat Brussels sprouts one time. Uh, but I'm one of those people who Brussels sprouts just don't work with. And I told her, I think I'm going to get sick if I eat those. She said, you need to eat your vegetables. And so I ate them, and I got sick right on the table right there. So <laughs> I won that little battle. Uh, elbows off the table. Okay. Close the door. Do you live in a barn? Break it down. Go to the bathroom before you leave the house. Okay. Don't play with sticks. You might poke your eye out. Yeah, or it's corollary. Uh, it's all fun and games until someone gets hurt, right? Or how about this one? Don't cross your eyes. They might get stuck like that. Yeah. Or it's corollary, which is uh, someday your face is going to freeze like that. How about this one? Just wait till your father gets home. <laughs> we heard that a few times. Never go to bed with a messy kitchen. Anybody? Okay. A penny saved is a penny earned. And one last one. Just do your best. That's all anyone can ask. Well, most of you know um, that my mom passed away last November at age 90 after a long battle with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. And she said most of those things uh, and more, more things, more important things actually, but the most important legacy I think she left uh, comes down to this, that I, and I've said this before, but I never lived a single day of my life without knowing three things. My mom and dad loved me, Jesus loved me, and God had a special thing in mind for my life. Not a single day. And that's a legacy. My mom's favorite verse was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that she could recite all the way until the day of her death. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will. She always emphasized will. He will direct your path. And to those parents who dedicated children today, uh, that's the best advice I could ever give. Well, today we wrap up an eight-week series from 1 Peter called Living Hope. And if you're visiting today, or maybe just coming back after months being away and haven't really been able to keep up with this series, after all, it's been eight weeks, let me just bring you up to speed if I can. Now, 1 Peter is an ancient letter written by the Apostle Peter to first-generation Christians who were living in the first century during the Roman Empire. And he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to teach them, in a sense, to give them some sound spiritual advice uh, and to give us that same advice as to how to live with faith and hope in a world that was growing increasingly hopeless and hostile toward them. And we selected a verse out of the first chapter of 1 Peter uh, to be our sort of memory verse for the whole series because it captures what Peter's trying to say. I wonder if you can recite this with me without looking at the screen, but we'll put it up there just in case. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And nothing in the rest of 1 Peter, nothing in the rest of what we studied, nothing about the life that he calls us to live, to be holy, to be subject to authority, to do good even to those who mistreat us, to endure suffering with joy, none of it makes any sense without understanding what Peter means by living hope which is the hope of eternal life, the hope of heaven. 
Now today we look at chapter 5, which is the last chapter in 1 Peter, and Peter finishes it up, finishes up, it seems to me, with three chunks of advice. First, I'm calling exhortations. I'll explain that word in a minute, and then a warning, and finally a promise. So 1 Peter chapter 5, let me read uh, the first few verses, and then we'll jump in. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. I'm going to stop there and begin with the first thing I see, which is Peter is giving exhortations to the people he's writing to. Exhortations, I'm going to explain that word in just a minute. Some of you know, uh, through the years when I've told stories, that I played a little high school football back in the day. And that's actually uh, a, a photo of my senior year in high school. Um, I played quarterback uh, partly because I could throw a little bit, like to throw stuff, and partly because I really couldn't play anywhere else on the football field. I didn't really much like the whole tackling and hitting thing, which is a problem when you play football. But I could play quarterback. Uh, my football coach at the time was a man named Phil Gennaro, who I eventually came to call Coach J. And he eventually became a longtime family friend. This is a photo of the last time he visited with us just a couple of years ago. But when he first got to our school, uh, as head football coach, he wasn't friend, he was coach, and I was terrified of Coach Jay. He was old school in that way. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. He would get in your face, grab you by the face mask, drag you around, and scream at you, do it again, do it again. He had this hoarse voice, and he called me coffee, because he had a New Jersey accent, coffee, do it again. So I was scared of the guy. Uh, he, he, we obeyed him as coach because he had the power of the whistle. Uh, he had the authority, and we feared that authority. But one day, that changed. Uh, we had suffered a humiliating defeat one Saturday, something like 55 to 6 or something like that, and we were dreading practice on Monday because we expected to be, to be punished severely by running 1,000 wind sprints or something like that. Uh, but that's not what happened. Uh, we got to practice, and instead of punishing us, he just called us all together in a group, and he said, we're going to have a full-contact scrimmage today, just a scrimmage game. We're like, okay, that's better than wind sprints. And then he said, it's first team against second team. That's even better because I was on the first team, and we had a small squad, so there was a big drop-off in talent between first team and second team. So we're thinking, oh, this really sounds good now. And then he said he was going to be the quarterback for the second team. We said, uh, what? He said, I'm going to be the quarterback of this second team. He wasn't wearing any, any pads, no helmet, no nothing, just, just coaching T-shirt and shorts and, and sneakers. And he was going to play quarterback in a live football scrimmage. Now, he was about 5'5", five, five, uh, and it was full contact. Uh, and then he guaranteed that with him playing quarterback, the second team would score a touchdown on the first team. And that got us fired up. Uh, this was the guy who yelled at us every day. This was the guy who made us run wind sprints till we got sick. It was just like too good to be true, right? Open season on hitting the coach. 
So the scrimmage started, and the second team got the ball first, and so Coach Jay started running plays. He starts calling signals. He starts handing off. He starts running the ball himself. He's diving into the line, and they keep inching the ball down the field. They keep getting first downs and first downs and first downs, and finally, Coach Jay took the ball, and he dived over the goal line with us doing everything we could to hit him, and he scored a touchdown. And he got up. He, hold, he held the ball out like that, and he called us all around, and he said, he's still breathing hard, and a little trickle of blood coming down his head, I still remember, where we hit him. And he went, gentlemen, that's how you play football. And he dropped the ball and walked off. Practice was over. And I never forgot that day. First of all, we started to play better after that day. But secondly, that was the day I started to love Coach Shea. And that was the day, I think, looking back, I started to understand something about what Peter's talking about here. He says, so I exhort... Now, we don't use that word exhort much, but here's what it means. It comes from the, work, the Greek word parakaleo, which means to come alongside, to encourage, to call out to. It's like a coach giving a pregame pep talk. Uh, it's not unlike a sermon where, where the, the, the person preaching exhorts the listeners. Uh, it's the same root word also, by the way, from which we get the word paraclete that's used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, one who comes alongside to encourage. So Peter says, I exhort you, the elders among you, as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Before I go on, I want you to see how Peter identifies himself, how he talks about himself. He calls himself a fellow elder. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Then he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter was with Jesus for three years as his disciple. Peter was an eyewitness to his teaching, to his miracles, to his death, and to his resurrection. That's what he means. Then he says, I'm a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That's Peter's way of saying that he has already experienced a taste of the glory that Christ has promised to reveal to all of us one day. So Peter here, of all people, could definitely pull rank in terms of authority. He could say, hey, do you know who I am? Do you realize who's writing to you? I'm Peter. I was with him. I'm a witness. I have authority. Listen to me. He doesn't say that, though. He says, I'm a fellow, fellow elder. I'm one of you. And he gives three, three exhortations. First, an exhortation to the elders. The word elders is the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get our word Presbyterian. It means a person of both age and wisdom, a person seasoned in judgment and experience. And he's referring here to the pastors and leaders in the newly born church. The church is brand new in the world. And he says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. A couple of more important words here, and he uses the word oversight. The word is episcopeo, from which we get our word episcopal, and it means to have oversight for or responsibility for. And we often connect that with authority. But the word actually has a greater meaning to care for or to look after. And then he uses the word shepherd. Now, shepherd is a very, very familiar image in the Bible. Uh, our, one of our favorite psalms, Psalm 23, begins, the Lord is my shepherd. King David was a shepherd boy before he became the great king of Israel. And in John 10, Jesus refers to himself like this, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here Peter uses shepherd as a verb. He says, shepherd the flock of God. 
I think he's thinking back to what Jesus said to him in John 21. Remember, Peter had denied Christ three times. After the resurrection, Jesus walked with them on the beach and three times asked him, do you love me? The passage goes like this. He said to him the third time, Peter said to, uh, Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In other words, shepherd my flock. So how does an elder or an overseer shepherd the flock? Peter gives us three beautiful phrases. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly. That's not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but out of a sense of joy and passion. He says, not for shameful gain, not for money, not for riches, but eagerly from the heart. Not domineering, literally not exercising lordship over, but being examples. So Peter here is speaking directly to pastors and leaders in the church. This is how we are to lead. But I think these principles also apply to anyone who's in a position of relative authority or leadership and responsibility. Parents, grandparents, teachers, bosses. And that's what I saw that day long ago in my football coach. And why are leaders to be shepherds? Look what Peter says in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you know who that is? The chief shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus himself. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. And that's the pattern we see throughout 1 Peter. There is service and obedience, subjection, sometimes suffering, and then there is a promise of glory. We'll see that again. There's a second exhortation, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. To you who are younger, those not yet in positions of leadership or authority, be subject to the elders. Now, I realize that uh, if we're honest, it's when we are younger that we often have a tendency to rebel against authority. Uh, we want to do it our way. We get tired of being told what to do. We, we get tired of those older telling us this is the way we should go. But Peter says, you who are younger, be subject. It's the same word he used chapters ago when he talked about being subject to all forms of human government. It's the same word he used when he talked about Christian marriage, to willingly submit to the leadership and authority of another. And here's the thing. That's so much easier to do when the overseer, when the elder, when the pastor, when the coach is also a shepherd. There's a third exhortation here. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is an interesting choice of words, I think. Clothe yourselves with humility. And it's interesting because our culture, I believe, teaches us that when we clothe ourselves, uh, literally when we put on our clothes, we should clothe ourselves in a way that makes us look good, right? Maybe you are, are familiar with the popular uh, clothing store commercial uh, that says, you, you will like the way you look, I guarantee it. Right? That's men's warehouse. Or maybe there's another one I hear on the radio that says, um, all men are created equal, and then they get dressed. In other words, dress for success. Clothe yourselves in a way that stands out. Make yourself look good. Gain the approval of others by how you appear. Peter says that spiritually speaking, we are to clothe ourselves in a different way. With humility, he says. 
Now, what is humility? The word means lowliness of mind, uh, having a modest opinion of oneself. It does not mean thinking poorly of yourself. You know, I'm a nobody, I'm no good at anything. That's not humility. That's a false humility. It doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. Rather, it means thinking of yourself less. It's a different thing. And humility is the opposite of pride. Notice he says, God opposes the proud. That's kind of a frightening phrase to me. God opposes the proud. It means if you carry pride with you as a habit, God sets himself against you. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A proud person tends to be critical of others, right? Because he or she needs to feel superior. The humble person is aware of his or, own, his or her own weaknesses and spiritual need. The proud person is concerned with being right. How much of that do we see in our culture today? The humble person is more concerned with doing right than being right. The proud person insists on getting his or her rights. We also see that quite a bit. The humble person is willing to yield his or her rights. The proud person is defensive when challenged. The humble person receives feedback or criticism with an open heart. The proud person has difficulty forgiving or seeking forgiveness. The humble person is willing to forgive and seek forgiveness. In his book called Freedom, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Pastor Tim Keller writes, True humil humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation to myself. Listen to that again. True humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation to myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. Humility means understanding who I am, who God is, and what he has done. And Peter points to two dimensions of humility. He says, first, humility toward one another. That is, we are to think of others more and ourselves less. So I wonder, was someone sitting in your pew today? We have more people coming now, and you may have a favorite place to sit, and someday you're going to come here, and there's going to be a guest sitting there. Do you think more about them, or do you think, they took my place, took my seat? <laughs> Second, he says, under the mighty hand of God. Compared to God, we are all clothed in humility. Three reasons, he says, we should do this. First, God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Secondly, God will exalt in due time. In other words, there's a reward that is coming our living hope. And then thirdly, he says, because God cares for you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He's suggesting that pride can lead, lead to a sort of self-reliance where we, we refuse to ask for help even when we need it because we're proud. He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares. He cares. Humility allows us to accept and experience the care and grace of God. So here's a summary. To those who lead, Lead as shepherds. To the young, be humble enough to submit. To all, clothe yourselves in humility. Because God promises grace to the humble. Second thing I see in this passage, chapter 5, is a warning. There's a warning here. A number of years ago, I had a chance to preach at a church in Nairobi, Kenya. And we took our whole family along on that trip. And while we were there, we um, went on a, a safari in a game reserve. And, of course, we wanted to see the lions, right? The lions are sort of the star of the show. Uh, but when we, in our, we were driving in a van. It wasn't a walking safari. We were driving in a van. And we came to where the lions were, uh, a whole pride of them. They were just lying in the road, sunning themselves like big, lazy house cats. 
It was kind of stunning. And we, could, we drove the van right up within feet of where they were laying, and they didn't even budge, act like they didn't even notice us. So I said to the driver, who was an experienced uh, tour guide, I said, hey, what's up with the lions? You know, all the other animals run away. Said, what's up with the lions? He goes, ha. He goes, hey, man, those are the top of the food chain. They're not scared of anything. And he said, plus, if they were hungry, they would just eat us, he said. <laughs> that was a little alarming, but that's true, because that's what lions do. I saw this quote from an expert in lion behavior this week. Almost any creature is a potential prey for a lion. And for people to think they are an exception is folly. Now, you can read stories across the internet about people who have bad encounters with big cats. And usually this foolishness is on the side of the, of the, of the human being. And Peter here is using lions as an example to give us a spiritual warning. He says in verse uh, 8, be sober-minded and watchful, that is, be alert, be on your guard, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says, your adversary the devil. Now, I want to ask and answer three, three questions just briefly at this point. Uh, who is the devil? Who is the one we call Satan. Now, in our culture today, I realize many, many people see the devil or Satan as a, as a cartoon-type character, you know, a little red figure with the pointy tail and the horns and the pitchfork and stuff like that. And we name our sports teams after this character, right? The, blue, the Duke Blue Devils, the DePaul Blue Demons, the New Jersey Devils. We do that because we regard, we regard it as a cartoon character. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are two equal and opposite mistakes when we, when we think of the devil. The first is to disbelieve in his existence, which over 50% of people who live in our culture d disbelieve that the Satan is a real thing. Uh, and the second is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. From cover to cover, the Bible assumes that Satan is real. He makes his first appearance in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and he is finally destroyed in Revelation chapter 20, two chapters from the end of the whole Bible. In various parts of the Bible, Satan or the devil is referred to as various names. Uh, he's the adversary. He's the accuser. He's the deceiver. He's the liar. He's the destroyer. And Satan is a, a, a created spiritual being uh, who once served God but became proud, was cast out of heaven, and has set himself against God and seeks to destroy all God made as good. That's a brief summary of what the Bible teaches. Satan is limited only exists because God allows him to exist, but he's been given temporary authority to wreak havoc on the earth. That's who Satan is. What does Satan do? Peter says he prowls about looking for someone to devour. That word devour means to consume, to swallow whole. So what does Satan do? He, he, he tempts. To tempt means to make that which is bad or destructive look good. When the serpent approached Eve in the garden, he didn't say of the forbidden fruit, hey, you know, that fruit, if you eat from it, you're going to be cast out of the garden and you'll be separated from God forever. It's going to ruin your life. No, he said, look how beautiful it is. It'll actually make you like God. And he says the same thing to us. He says, this won't hurt you. This won't ruin your life. This will make you happy. That's his strategy. He makes the bad look good. He accuses. One of Satan's names in the Bible is the accuser of the brethren. And that simply means where God confronts us by his Holy Spirit to forgive and to restore, 
Satan uses our own sin against us. He's the one that whispers, you know that thing you did back, you know that thing that nobody else knows about? You think God can actually forgive you for that? There's no way he's going to forgive you for that. You're going to carry that for the rest of your life. He's the one who accuses the brethren. He's the slanderer. He even accuses God. And thirdly, he terrifies. Satan terrifies and he intimidates. Peter says he roars. And here's what I think. This whole letter is written to people living in the context of suffering and persecution. Nero was beginning to persecute and slaughter Christians for their faith because he made them the enemy of Rome. So in the context of the letter, I think Peter's talking about the roar of suffering and pain. The enemy is using suffering against these people. He's the one saying, your God is not so good. Look what he's letting happen to you. Look at the pain you're in. God is not good. He doesn't care for you, and he won't take care of you. That's the roar of the enemy. And so what are we to do? Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, understand who your enemy is and how he works, and then resist him. How? How do we resist an enemy we cannot see, an enemy that works like that? He says, by being firm in the faith. If we go back to Matthew chapter 4 in the Gospels, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And he tempts him to turn stones into bread because he's been fasting. And we read this in uh, Matthew chapter 4. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Simple enough. Sounds good, right? This will make you happy. You can eat. You can use your power for this. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how did Jesus resist? It is written, he said. It is written. In other words, know who God is, know what the gospel promises, and know that you are not alone. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. Peter here isn't writing to an individual. He's writing to a whole community. He's writing to the church. He's writing to this community right here. And he says, resist your enemy. Resist him together. And thirdly, we see in this chapter 5 a promise. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you have suffered for a little while. We've seen this over and over again as we've gone through this letter. We see that Peter's been saying that suffering happens. Suffering is assumed in this life. It's to be expected, and it's coming. Remember remember what Peter said in chapter 4? He said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised. Here he again connects our suffering with a promise. He says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself. So this is the living hope. This is what we look forward to. Restore, that means to repair, to make perfect what is broken. He will confirm, to make good on his promises. He will confirm the truth of your faith. He will establish, that is to build a foundation for our faith. He will strengthen, to give us the strength to endure all things. And here's the promise. God is doing all of these things through his Holy Spirit right now in our lives. Right now, that's the promise. With whatever you are facing, whatever you're going through, God works 
to strengthen, confirm, establish, and restore. And this is his promise that he's going to do forever in the new heaven and new earth. Now, Peter closes this letter with a typical sort of ancient letter uh, greeting. You can see it in most of the letters of the New Testament. Paul does it. Peter here does it. But there's something really interesting in these last verses. I was almost going to skip over them, but but they're pretty important. Verse 12, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was in Babylon, that's code word for the church in Rome, uh, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, believed to have been a traveling companion of Peter. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I want to direct you back to that single name, that name Silvanus. This is most likely the same man as is called Silas in other parts of the New Testament who traveled with the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's now serving Peter and helping him write and deliver this letter. What I notice is how Peter talks about Silvanus. He says, a faithful brother as I regard him. It's a simple line. Now, Silvanus doesn't have a book in the New Testament with his name on it. Not like Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or 1 and 2 Peter. He doesn't have a, a book with his name on it. There's no 1 and 2 Silvanus in our Bible, right? He isn't considered one of the apostles, like Peter or Paul. But his name is in the book. His name is in the Word of God forever. Why? Because he was a faithful brother. Maybe think of a friend of mine I met a couple years ago named Fred Wangwa. I met him in the summer of 2019 when I visited a cure hospital in Uganda. Uh, Fred invited me to participate in a baptism one Sunday afternoon in a small river near, near where their church was. Uh, but Pastor Fred grew up in extreme poverty in Uganda. His father was an alcoholic, did not support the family. Two of Fred's older siblings died of starvation right before his eyes. By the time he was five years old, he was working in local fields, trying to earn enough money so he could eat. He was five years old. Never went to school because his parents didn't take him to school, but he was taken in eventually at about age seven or eight by a local church, people who just cared for him and loved him. He learned about Jesus, eventually got a scholarship to a Bible school after never going to school. And he was so gifted, he excelled in that Bible school and became a pastor. Now he's a chaplain for that cure hospital in Uganda. He spends his days praying for very, very sick children and their mothers. He's also the pastor of a local church. Uh, Pastor Fred has also planted by himself 10 other churches in the mountains, trained all 10 of those pastors, and he recently started the church uh, in a heavily Muslim area of the city. Uh, Fred faces, we email back and forth once a month or so, Uh, Fred faces poverty, disease, threat of violence, persecution, but Fred is not fearful. None of his emails are fearful. They're not disheartened. He doesn't ask for anything. He wants to pray for me, for us, for our family. He's filled with hope and joy. Now, Fred is not famous. Pastor Fred hasn't written a best-selling book. He doesn't have a podcast. His life and ministry are going to go unnoticed unless I would tell somebody about him, except for the people who know him in this small, remote part of Africa. His life makes no sense. His ministry makes no sense without the promise of living hope. But with that promise, his life becomes powerful. And I believe that today, Pastor Fred's name is known by God. And that in due time, he will be exalted. Because he is 
a faithful brother, because he is a shepherd, because he's humble, and because God has promised. And that's the promise he has for each one of us today. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord God, how I thank you today for your word. We thank you for Peter's timeless instruction, for his exhortations, his encouragement to humility, to watchfulness, and the great reminder that you promise to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. So may your spirit today strengthen each one of us through our living hope. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.